The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew uh, chapter 24, and this morning after a week absence, we return to this 24th chapter, and we're in a discussion of what it will be like when the, uh, the time before the coming of Christ. And, and I do want to remind you again that when the Bible speaks of the second coming of Christ, that primarily what we have in mind, or the Bible has in mind, is not the rapture. Now, most Christians think that way, but when you look in the Old Testament prophecies and what the prophets had to say when they wrote about the coming kingdom of Christ, they didn't understand anything at all about the rapture. What we know about the rapture is revealed in the New Testament scriptures, and so that was just a complete mystery to the Old Testament prophets. And so it's interesting that Jesus, when he talked about his own second coming, that he didn't spend time on the rapture, but that is a doctrine that's developed later in the New Testament. The apostles taught that after the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they're the ones who actually put the meat on the skeletal teachings of Jesus when it comes to the issue of the church. And so we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 24, in which the disciples have questions about the kingdom of Christ. And here Jesus says nothing about the rapture. Instead, he dealt with signs of the kingdom which he describes as seven years of tribulation that will come on the earth after he takes the church out of the world. Now, the disciples then wanted to know about the kingdom, and in these two chapters that are called the Olivet Discourse, this is what Jesus discusses, and this is what he terms to be his second coming. So the rapture is not the main event. The Bible's not talking about that. But it is speaking of the thousand-year reign of Christ when he comes in his glory and sets up a kingdom upon this earth. Now, I want you to notice our text verses for today. And we begin at verse number 21 of chapter 24. And let's just go ahead and stand one more time. And you'll, you'll be sitting for a long time this morning, so I'll give you a chance to stand up here before we begin. Verse number 21, For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible... They shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is there, a carcass is there will the eagles be gathered together. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the time we have to spend together today. Help us as we look into your word to understand it's ever so much better. Thank you for the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My subject today is chosen for assurance. 
Now, in the last messages when we were talking about this chapter, we took a little bit of a detour in our study in order that I might discuss with you one of my favorite doctrines of the Scripture, and that is the doctrine of election. And, of course, I'm not talking about the elections in our country or speaking about what happens in November when you go to the polls, but I'm talking about an election or a choice that God made before he created the world that there would be a certain number of humanity that would be made the special recipients of his grace. I'm talking about that election, and that election had nothing to do with us as a cause for it, but the scriptures teach us that it was in the purpose of God himself. It has everything, nothing to do with us as far as him choosing us, but it has everything to do with us as far as our personal destiny. That is, we're headed for heaven because of what Christ has, uh, God has done for us in his election. And without this election, there would never be anyone saved because we are all sinners justly deserving of God's wrath. God's election is God's intention to bring us to glory. I don't have time to go into that part of the subject again today, but I do want to show you from this text and from others that this election of God provides for us the greatest assurance of eternal salvation. Now, there's a lot of argument in the, in the Christian world today about this. Is it really true that once a person receives Christ as his Savior that he is secure forever, that there's no possibility of ever losing his salvation. And I want to tell you that that is a doctrine that is absolutely true. And the Bible speaks of it in many different places and gives us different ways that we understand the assurance that God has given us in his salvation. But there is none that we find in Scripture that is any better, that is the most infallible guarantee we have of all, that we are sure to make it to heaven, and that is the election this eternal election that God has made of his people. He chose you, and that furnishes the very best proof that you are as sure for heaven as if you were already there. Read Romans 8, 29, and 30 again. And I'm not going to go to those scriptures today because we read them several times past. So we won't go there today, but there you'll find in those scriptures a completed process, an infallible guarantee, a beginning from before the foundation of the world all the way to God's glory. We have a salvation that is completely settled forever. Now, before, though, I bring to the forefront this doctrine of God's assurance out of this text, we, we do have a, a couple of maintenance items, a couple of textual maintenance items that we need to discuss. The time that's under consideration is the tribulation. And this is a horrible time when a man who is known as the Antichrist is going to hold power over the whole earth. And this man is a satanic puppet, and Satan uses him to inflict such pain and persecution on the world, and especially upon the Jewish people, that Jesus said that there will never be another time like this. No time before or after shall be like this. And that's what Jesus says in verse number 21. And you see in verse number 22 that Jesus mentions the elect, and he mentions the shortening of the days of the tribulation. Now, there, there are many passages of Scripture that we don't clearly understand. And this is one of those passages where we can't say that we can't be absolutely dogmatic and say this is exactly what Jesus means when he says that he's going to shorten the days of the tribulation. 
Now, there are some who say that this means that Jesus will, or God is going to shorten the daylight hours. The daylight hours are going to be shortened. Because there is going to be a lot that's going on in the cosmos at that time. And God is actually going to reduce daylight hours by shutting out the sun and the moon and the stars for a period of time. Matthew 24, 29 tells us that. Uh, Revelation 8, verse 12 tells us that. And so the Bible does definitely say this, that God is going to blot out heavenly bodies and the sun is going to be partially darkened and the whole cosmos is going to be in disarray at the time of the tribulation and when Jesus comes again. But then there are others that are not so sure about that. They're equally as sure of a different interpretation. And rather they say that this means that God only allows seven years of tribulation. That the world is far deserving of greater judgment than God would inflict. than a greater time of judgment, a longer time of pain and suffering, that it's justly deserving to come upon the world. But what God has decided to do is to limit it to seven years. And then... God is going to bring his glorious kingdom upon the earth. Now, I tend to side with that second opinion, but whichever is the case here, I, will, I do know this, that God says it's going to be so bad that if he didn't shorten it, there would not be one soul that's left upon the earth. And so God, for the sake of the elect, is going to shorten this to ensure the survival of his people to go into this glorious kingdom. Now, another note on the text is what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24, where he speaks of false Christ, and these false Christ are those who are actually in the core of the Antichrist mentioned in verse number 15. These are people who claim that they can help in the time of tribulation. They're ones who say they have the ability to stop all of this if you just follow them. And so the Antichrist, uh, he's going to be one who'll have special ability to do great signs and wonders. There are supernatural things that he does because of the power of Satan. And these signs and wonders, miracles that he does, are very convincing to people. But he also has many helpers. Uh, there are others that are influenced by demons, and they'll do the same. And the miracles will be so convincing that Jesus said that if it was possible, they shall deceive the elect. And, and I'll deal with that in just a moment. But you notice here that Jesus said, don't believe the lies. When somebody says, come into the desert and there you can meet the real Christ. Come into a secret place and we'll show you where Christ is. Jesus says, don't believe that. And why does he say don't believe it? Well, first of all, it it may be a trap. Most likely it is a trap because it's a lie. But more than that, Jesus says, don't believe it because when he comes, it's not going to be a secret. When he comes, it's not going to be a hidden event. All the world will know without question that he is here. Like lightning, he says, that shoots across the sky from one end of the earth to the other, every eye will be able to see the manifestation of God's glory as Jesus comes to this earth. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be in some desolate place on the earth. But the Bible says, and Jesus tells us here, that his coming is going to be in the clouds. That his coming is going to be accompanied by angels, electrifying events in the sky. His coming is going to be with thousands upon thousands of the redeemed. We're going to talk more about that next week, that part of it. But for now, what we need to do is return to this subject. That God's election provides the best guarantee of our eternal salvation. Now, I'd like you to notice, first of all today, the protection of the elect. 
Matthew 24:22. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. It is for the sake of the elect that the days of the tribulation will be shortened. Now, I think that ought to tell you something. That amidst all the earth-shattering events that are taking place at that time, amidst all the wickedness that's going on that God is dealing with, with the occupancy of his time, with his greatest enemy who has all of these schemes, the devil's greatest schemes, in the midst of all of that, God has time to think about his elect. And you would think that with all that God has to do with upholding the universe by his power, with an arch enemy that never stops with its constant evil devices, you would think that God would be too preoccupied to think about those of us who are living on this little speck that's called the earth. But if you think that, you would be wrong. God is omnipotent. He's not bothered should a billion things be going on at once. He's not bothered by a new issue that comes up. Should a trillion things be happening, nothing is a burden to God so that he doesn't have time even to supply the necessary food for one sparrow that lives on this little place in the universe. Now, didn't Jesus already tell us that? Let's turn back to Matthew 6 for just a moment. Matthew 6 and verse number 25. If you ever wonder, does God think about you? Do you wonder if you're left alone to just make it for yourself and that you don't know where God is, you can't find him anywhere? You, is God really thinking about you? Well, you can take comfort in these verses. In Matthew 6, verse 25, starting there, Therefore, Jesus says, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? And there Jesus means his people, he means his elect, those that he came to give his life to save. Aren't you better than the birds that are in the sky? Aren't you that are the special objects of his love and of his life and his death? Aren't you better than that little bird that doesn't even have the Spirit of God in him, who doesn't even recognize there is a God. He has no intelligence for that. If God cares for the birds, doesn't he care for you? And that's that attention to the, to the small little details that accentuate the care and concern that Christ has for his elect. Is God going to turn his attention away from them? When it's been his whole scheme from eternity past to save them and to bring them to glory. And then understand this also, that if you are God's gift to his son and God wants a people to glorify his son, is he going to give up so easily on you? And so when you feel distant from God and you feel like God is not out there and, and God is not paying attention to you, that God doesn't listen to you, it's because of your lack of faith and not because of any effort on God's part to come to your aid. Because he's always there. He's always thinking about you. And if you think he's not there, that is your lack of faith, not a lack of follow-up with God. Now, the Bible is very emphatic about God's love and protection of his own. The Bible talks about it in many, many places. Now, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 10 and verse number 27. And the Gospel of John is 
Jesus' greatest teaching on this subject. He is unequivocal about this. He is unambiguous about the teaching of the elect and the security of their salvation. And he says in John 10, verse number 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now there in verse number 28, Jesus said that his people will never perish, that he has given them eternal life, and he says, I am holding them in my hand. And then he follows that up in verse number 29 by saying that they are also held in the Father's hand. And he says, my Father is greater than all. And so what he shows us here is a double-fisted protection of God over his people. God the Father and God the Son securely holding his people in his hands. And not only that, but we learn from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is also doing his part. In Ephesians 4, verse number 30, there it says that the Holy Spirit seals us until the day of redemption. And that seal is God saying, this is mine. Don't touch this because this belongs to me. He's put his own seal upon us. And so what we can say then is that the doctrine of our security in Christ, the assurance that we have of salvation, is a Trinitarian doctrine. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all play a part in keeping a Christian eternally secure. And what is the result of that? The result is Satan is powerless against us. Jude, verse 24, says that God is able to keep us from falling. 1 Peter 1, verse 5, says that we are kept by the power of God through faith. And what you find as you go through the New Testament is that the whole tenor, or the Bible in general, the, 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 the whole tenor of this is that God has his elect people and he is so concerned about them that he puts all the power that he possesses into their safekeeping. And so it's no wonder that we come to Romans 8.31 and Paul says there, If God be for us, who can be against us? Now God's intention of choosing you was to ensure that he would have a people for his name. And so let me put it to you this way, that you cannot occupy God with any greater employment than the preservation of his people. Because that's what God set out to do before he ever created the world. Before the first light ever appeared in heaven, before the first blade of grass shot up from the earth, before the first fish opened his mouth and through his gills passed a current of water, before that the Bible says that God chose his people. Before the foundation of the world, God chose them, and folks, his people have occupied his time ever since. He's always engaged with his people, employed in the preservation of those that he has called. And so you see that when it comes to the end, that God is not going to go through all of that trouble to allow his people to perish and to be lost in hell. When it comes to the end, God is still going to be there protecting his elect. He shortens the days in which he could blast the earth until there is not a microbe that survives. But he's not going to do that until the very last one of those that he has chosen to salvation have been secured. Somebody asked me a week or so ago, a couple of weeks ago, about 2 Peter 3.9. Well, this is what 2 Peter chapter 3 is, is about. 
There it says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises that some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And folks, you can rejoice in that scripture. You can find assurance there because there is nothing better than knowing this, that you are among the number that God has chosen. Because of that, you have all of God's attention. You are just like his own dear son. Do you understand that? You are just like his own son to him. And let me show you that. Let's go to the book of Hebrews for just a minute. And let's turn to uh, chapter 2. And there are just so many places in Scripture that we could go that, that I, I, in, in preparing this message, I was beside myself and what should I put in and what should I leave out? There's just so much here. But look here for just a minute at what Jesus did for you. Hebrews 10, verse number 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now do you see verse number 10? He is going to bring many sons to glory. He is the captain of their salvation. In verse number 11, we are called the brothers of Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that a special relationship that we also have to God? That if we are the brothers of Jesus Christ, then aren't we also the sons of God? And this is the point he's trying to bring out. Verse number 12, saying, I will declare unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So who are these sons that are brought to glory? They are the children that God has given to his son. And we read that just a few weeks ago, didn't we? In John 17, verse number 2. He gives eternal life to as many as have been given to him by the Father. And we see as we go through Scripture that it's consistent on this very point. Now look at verses 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, I'll tell you that when he speaks of children there, the children who are partakers of flesh and blood are the ones that he's going to deliver. Now, he's not talking about everybody in general here. He's talking about these children that he's come to save, that he might destroy them and have the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is what he came to do. What's Christ going to do for those that are given to him? He will deliver them by destroying the one who has the power of death. And here he's speaking of that spiritual death and that physical death that comes because of the sin of man and, and listening to the lies of Satan. And in verse number 9, he talks about how Christ stepped down in the flesh, became flesh to taste death, and what was the intention of doing that? But this, to destroy death and to deliver the children. And I would submit to you that if, in, if Christ loses even one that he died for, then he's a failure and he cannot be God. He said that those who are given to him by the Father will be delivered and they're going to make it to glory. And so what is that? 
That's a guarantee of assurance for those that are chosen. I don't understand why anybody wants to get rid of the doctrine of election because you can rest right here. You, you can take your case right here and just stop. A child of God cannot lose his salvation because he has been elected by God to eternal life. Now let me go on and I'll show you next that the text here says that you cannot be deceived. There's no way that your salvation can leave you because you can't be deceived. Number two is the deception of the elect. Now right here... In this heading, I want you to be sure to write in capital letters, and I've included another line for you just to make the point, the deception of the elect, not. And you can put an exclamation behind the not. Be sure that you write down not, because if you come back to this at a later time and you see the deception of the elect, you say, well, what's that all about? Because the elect can't be deceived. So make sure you write the not. Look, look at verse number 24. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. If it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Do you need me to explain that statement? It is not possible. Now, I want you to note the contrast that Jesus makes. He's trying to make a point here about how great that the Antichrist deception will be during the time of the tribulation. And he mentions the elect, but the elect is not the main point here. It's the magnitude of the deception. And he makes that point by putting it side by side with the greatest effort that God makes, that his greatest efforts are expended in the preservation of his elect. Back in verse number 21, he said that the time of tribulation is greater than the world has ever seen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that God will send strong delusion so that people believe a lie. It says that the Antichrist fools people into believing that he is God. I don't think you can find a deception that's greater than that. The whole world is deceived during this time. The Antichrist sets up an idol in the temple that has strange mystical powers. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 13, and we'll look at verse number 11. And in this verse, we find that the Apostle John is writing about a false prophet who assists the Antichrist. I, I, I think that he's going to be a Jew, and these days of deception are going to be primarily geared towards the Jewish people, although the whole world will be deceived. And look what this false prophet is able to do. Revelation 13, verse number 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now let me just explain. He has two horns. Horns stand for power. He's a very powerful being, and he's like a lamb. That means he looks like he's meek. He comes deceptively, but he, draw, he speaks like a, a dragon. And verse 12 says, He exerciseth all the power of the first beast, that is the Antichrist, all the power of the Antichrist before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, that is, to the Antichrist, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak 
and caused that as many as would not worship the image of the beast, the Antichrist, should be killed. Now, do you see this? There's so much activity, demonic activity that's going on, that this idol of the Antichrist is able to speak. I've never seen an idol that could speak. Have you? I've been to a Catholic church, not for service, but I've been inside one a time or two, and everywhere there are idols. Everywhere you see idols, but I've never seen one of them speak. Not one time have I seen them speak. As Paul said, they're just dumb idols. Those idols are deader than 4 o'clock a.m. They don't speak. But how convincing would it be if you walked in there and one of those idols turned to you and spoke to you? Well, after you recovered from the heart attack, you would say, you know, that, that's, that's something right there. That's something that can be believed. That's very special. That must be from God. And that is the deception that happens in the tribulation time. This is how great it is. Greater than the world has ever seen. And many are going to be convinced by it simply because they've never seen anything like it. Now, can you imagine Roman Catholics today who love their idols? What if their idols could speak to them? Do you think that they would be deceived by that? Would you think they wouldn't say, that must be the power of God that causes that idol to speak? I was driving in a church this morning, not more than just a a little bit over a block from my house. There's a church that sits back off the road, and I don't actually know what kind, all about what kind that it is. It's some kind of a Catholic church, I would imagine, but there are idols all over the property. You, You look in there, and there's idols everywhere. Imagine if you drove into church one Sunday morning as you drove in, all the idols said, welcome to our church. You, would you be deceived by that? Well, sure you would. This is what we're talking about in the time of the tribulation. The Antichrist deceives people. Now, get the point here is that the deception is the greatest of all and the elect will not fall for it. Now, let's think that through. What does it tell you? If the greatest deception cannot deceive the elect then there is no deception that can deceive you. And do you know why? Well, first of all, you're the elect. You're the chosen of God. And God is not going to go through the work of, of sending Christ to the cross and there being a resurrection and an ascension of Christ into heaven just to allow some two-bit phony baloney to trick you. And I'll tell you something else. In every person that God has chosen and brought to salvation, he puts his own Holy Spirit in them to help them to discern between truth and lies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we read, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we know the things that come from God. We are able to take spiritual things and compare them with spiritual things. You need to read 1 John sometime, because 1 John is all about assurance of your salvation. And in the end of that book, in 1 John 5, verse number 13, John says, I wrote these things so that you would know that you have eternal life. And you know what some of the things are that he wrote? Listen to 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. As an elect believer in Jesus Christ, you have the ability to test the spirits. You know when somebody's speaking a lie. You know that because the Holy Spirit 
is inside of you, and the Holy Spirit sounds that alarm. And so when Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen come on the TV, then you hear that and you say, something's wrong here. Something's not quite right. And you might not even have all of your theological ducks in a row, but when you hear these kinds of things, the Holy Spirit who is in you prods you or it pokes you and says, that's not right. Your understanding is poked by the Holy Spirit and you turn away from that. And you see, if, if you think that Joel Osteen has some great spiritual insight, then you need to check up on your salvation. I mean, something is seriously wrong. You are either suppressing the Holy Spirit that lives in you, or you don't have him at all. The Holy Spirit enables you to see through the ruse. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, and you can make note of this scripture and look it up later, but there Paul says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. In Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us there that the devil has many wiles, many schemes against us. But you know what the very same chapter says? It says we have the armor of God. We cannot be deceived. Hebrews 10 verse 39 says, We are not those who draw back to perdition. We are those who believe to the saving of our souls. In 2 Corinthians 13 6, Paul says, We are not reprobates. In 2 Thessalonians 5 verse 5, Paul said, Ye are all the children of light and the children of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And so here's the point again, that the deception of the tribulation is going to be greater than the world has ever seen. It is so great that if it were possible, it would deceive the elect. And the point, the point is for you here and now, is that if you are the elect, if you are a chosen believer in Jesus Christ, there is no deception great enough to deceive you. If the deception that is the greatest of all time, of all the world, cannot deceive the elect, and there isn't anything in the present time or any time to come that can separate you, that can pull you away from your faith in Christ. That's just a logical conclusion. You don't have to be a theologian to figure all of this out. And again, the election of God furnishes you with the greatest assurance of your salvation. No matter what happens, you cannot be deceived. Now think about that. To get you to turn away from Christ, wouldn't it take some kind of great deception? And yet the Word of God says, there is nothing that can deceive you. The greatest deception cannot deceive you. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. If you're thinking at all, then your mind has to go to that friend or that family member or that person that you know that was once in church and now you can't get them into church by pulling them with a John Deere tractor. They don't live for Christ. They don't have any interest in him. Sometimes they might even say that they just don't care about God anymore. But what about them? Aren't they the elect who have been deceived? Well, let's start with this. The first thing that matters is were they really saved? I mean, just because somebody starts out like a house on fire doesn't mean that they really know Christ. There are many who will claim that they know Christ, and you know what Jesus said, that I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. That Christ will say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I don't know you. Now, what he's talking about in that scripture, he, he's speaking about people that are still in church. And he's talking about people who are still attending the services and teaching Sunday school. They drive church buses. They do all kinds of stuff, all kinds of works for the Lord. And still there are some of them that Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. 
And so what, what is it that makes you think that the person who says, I trusted Christ, but then he fizzles out, then what makes you think that Christ knows that person? I mean, my goodness, folks, there are people that stay in church all of the time. They go all the time. And some of them, God is going to say, I never knew you. Because there was nothing that really happened in their heart. And so before you start talking about security, once saved, always saved, you have to get that once saved part down first. Did they really trust Christ? And the problem is they never really trusted Christ. There are some seeds that fall on stony places, don't they? Some seeds immediately spring up, but then they're scorched. They have no deepness of earth, and they die. They wither away. Read the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, and you find out what appears to be faith many times is not really faith at all. Then the apostle John chimed in on the subject. He wrote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And so when you see people that leave and they go off from the church and they are deceived by a false religion or they just keep going in the wrong direction, John said they leave because they weren't really Christians. That if they were true Christians, they would stay. So don't assume anything about anybody that won't stay in church. First of all, assume that they're lost before you convince yourself that they're saved. Now listen to this important scripture in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 19. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now that might seem very strange to you. But God sometimes allows heretics to grow up in the church just for the purpose of pointing out who is true and who is not. And so when someone comes into the church and he deceives people and he's a heretic and there are people that follow that heretic, then the person who's not saved has been revealed. Christ uses that as a way to purge his church from the devices of Satan. Deception draws out unbelievers. And we don't want unbelievers in the church. Deception is evident by that person who says that I was saved, but then that deception causes him to leave the Lord Jesus Christ in the true faith. And what did Jesus say? There is no deception that can deceive the elect. Nothing can move his people away from the faith. And so if people are deceived, they never were in the faith. Well, we still have a problem, don't we? Still a problem here. Aren't there some that backslide? And yes, you see that in First and Second Corinthians. There was a fellow in the church in, at Corinth. We read about him in First Corinthians who had an affair with his stepmother. That was incest. That's a terrible sin. And Paul said, you need to get that person out of the church. You need to discipline him, get him out of the church. And that's what they did. But we come to Second Corinthians and we find out that this man was, had repented. And now he was back in the church. Now, do people, do Christians really get involved in some nasty sins? <laughs> yes, they do. But it's important for us to remember that God's people will ultimately persevere. God demands that they persevere. You don't have the option of laying back and saying, you know, I just not going to do anything. I'll just do whatever it is I want to do. Once saved, always saved, you know. And that's the charge that's often laid at the feet of the doctrine of eternal security, once saved, always saved. The charge that's laid at the feet that if the elect can never fail, then the elect will just live the way that they want to live. 
And a person who says that does not really understand salvation that we have in Christ. Because the people of God don't want to do anything that they can do. Anything they're big enough to do. The people of God want to persevere in the faith. God's put that into our heart. Now, there's one Baptist preacher who said, well, old Smith over there, old Smith over there at Berean Baptist, he believes in perseverance, so he doesn't think that a believer can fall into serious sin. And so I just pointed out through an old historic Baptist confession of the faith that teaches election as I do, and this is what it says about perseverance. This is Article 17, Sections 2 and 3 of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. There it says in Section 2, The perseverance of the saints does not depend on them, that is, on their own free will. It rests upon the immutability of the decree of election which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. It also rests upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and upon the union which true saints have with him. It rests upon the oath of God and upon the abiding of his spirit. It depends upon the seed of God being within them and upon the very nature of the covenant of grace. All these factors give rise to the certainty and infallibility of the security and perseverance of the saints. Then it goes on in section 3 and it says, The saints may, through the temptation of Satan and the world, and because their remaining sinful tendencies prevail over them, and through their neglect of the means which God hath provided to keep them, fall into grievous sins. They may continue in this state for some time so that they incur God's displeasure, grieve his Holy Spirit, suffer the impairment of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their conscience wounded and hurt and scandalize others. By this they will bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith, faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Well, I don't know how you say it better than that. A Christian can fall into sin. It may appear that he has no saving graces in him at all. He may even hurt his brothers and sisters in Christ. He may fail them with a bad testimony. But if that person is a true believer, he will come back. And if you see one that doesn't come back, they never were a true believer. And I'm sorry if that means your mom or your dad, your brother or your sister or even your child. You see, there are many parents that count on a child's baptism or the fact that a child walked the aisle and shook a preacher's hand, went through the waters of baptism, or had some kind of experience at church camp, or something happened to them at a youth rally, and they said that they were saved and the parents believed that, but now they can't get them into church, and now those same children are living with their girlfriends and their boyfriends. And let me tell you something about this. Start praying for them. Pray for them now. Start praying about their salvation. Don't assume anything. If you're going to assume something, assume they're not saved. Pray for them. What does the scripture say? Philippians chapter 1 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship and the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. When that good work of salvation has begun in a person's heart, it will continue, it will be performed, and that's God's guarantee. Now let me take you back to that old statement of faith for just a minute. Did you notice what we read in section chapter, or section 2, 17 verse 2? We do not persevere on our own. We cannot 
do this by ourselves. We do not have the ability to keep ourselves from falling, from being deceived. The only way that we're kept is by the power of God and that perseverance in our faith flows out of the free love of God for us. Because God chose you and because he intends to get you to heaven, he provides everything that you need to get there. Now, he knew that temptations would come. He knew that this would happen because you are those frail creatures. He knew what would happen. But he put in place a plan that would bring you through. Now, this is not helter-skelter stuff, folks. God is perfectly consistent all the way through his word. He has a plan, and he provided every means to see that plan through. And so what did he do? He chose you. Somewhere back in eternity past, he chose you. He said, Mark Smith is going to heaven, and then he wrote my name down. And then he said, this is how I'm going to get him there. My son is going to die for him, and then I'm going to bring him to repentance and faith. And then he said, that sorry rascal sometimes is going to be ungrateful for what I've done, and he's going to act like I never did anything for him. But I love him. And I'm invested in him. And I'm not going to let him go. And so I'm not going to let him get away. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within him. And it will cause him to seek me. And when he begins to stray, my Holy Spirit will say to him, or he will come to him, and he will punch him in the mouth, and he'll say, let's go my way. And I wish you could see the spiritual bruises, because they're there. Hebrews says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And I've been scourged many times. But I'm holding out faithful because I have been chosen by God. I have this persevering attachment to him. And my greatest, my greatest assurance is my election. Now here in the passage, Jesus is talking about how terrible that it will be in the time of tribulation. And as he gives this exposition of the end times, he brings out one of the greatest doctrines that we find in the Word of God, and that is, if you are saved, you will always be saved. The foundation of your assurance is your election in God. Now, do you know that you're going to heaven? Well, you don't start out this way. I know I'm going to heaven because I'm the elect. You don't start out that way. Where you start is, what do you believe about Jesus Christ. What do you believe about him? Are you a vile, guilty sinner deserving of hell and God should just skip to the chase right now and pour out his judgment on you? Is that what you deserve? Are you guilty enough to say that God should not shorten the days of any of my affliction? God should pour out everything on me because I'm justly deserving of that. First thing you have to get right is you. You have to get right about who you are and where you stand and the judgment of God. And then the next thing you have to do is to get it right about Jesus, that he came to save sinners. And that Jesus does it all by himself. He doesn't need your help because you can't help him. You have to realize that. And so he says, if you repent of your sins and you place your faith in him to save you from those sins, then you are a sinner who has been elected by God to salvation. You're on your way to heaven with his infallible guarantee. Now, what I could have done today, I could have given you a dozen different ways to be sure of your salvation because the Bible has many, many other places where it talks about the very same things 
We even sang about one of those because Christ is our intercessor, because he is our great high priest. We are infallibly guaranteed because he stands forever in heaven pleading for us. We know we can't fail. I could go a dozen different places. But I chose this one because this is the very first of all of it. Here, here is a foundational thing. That because we have been chosen by God, we are assured that we're going to be in heaven. And so you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him, then just thank God at this very moment, you are another child of God that without fail will be in heaven. Thank God for the assurance that we have of our salvation. I'm not worried about losing it because I know who's kept it for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great promise that we find in the word uh, Lord, so many ways that you've, you've shown us how you care for us, how you love us, how we have your attention, that you're never going to turn loose of us. So many examples that could be given. We're graven on the palms of your hand. We have a great intercessor. We have a high priest. We have Holy Spirit. We have the Father. We have the Son. We have all of these guarantees throughout Scripture that tells us that once we've trusted you, we never, never will depart from the faith. We thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for keeping us secure. I pray for somebody here this morning who doesn't know Christ as Savior. May they understand today what's been said, and may they put their faith in this God who has done all things for us to save us and to ensure that we would be in heaven there to glorify his Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Bless your people as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org